1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the network, and today I'm joined by Professor Mark Bender. Mark is professor in Chinese at The Ohio State University, chair of the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures, and also my former supervisor. Today, we spoke about his new book, The Norsu Book of Origins, a creation epic from southwest China, translated with Norsu scholar Aku Wu and religious specialist Jivo Zochu, and recently published with the University of Washington Press. The Norsu are a subgroup of the Yi ethnic group in southwest China, and Mark has been working with scholars and religious specialists from Daliangshan, or the Greater Cool Mountains area of southern Sichuan Province, for several decades. The Book of Origins is, in Mark's words, a cosmographic urtext for how the N'osu traditionally see themselves and their place in the world. Our conversation spanned both the content of the epic itself and its place in traditional uh, and contemporary N'osu culture. We also spoke about Mark's interests in epic and the collaborations that are at the heart of his work. It was a fascinating conversation, and that only scratches the surface of this tremendous book and I hope you'll enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the New Books Network, and today I'm joined by Professor Mark Bender. Mark is professor in Chinese at The Ohio State University, chair of the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures, and my for- my former advisor. Today we're talking about his new book, The Norsu Book of Origins, a creation epic from southwest China, translated with Norsu Scholar, Akuwu and religious specialist Jifo Zochu, and recently published with the University of Washington Press. This book is his twelfth, with translations and academic monograph publications spanning spanning almost precisely four decades of engagement with oral traditions and poetry in the People's Republic of China. Professor Bender, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: The pleasure is all ours. Um, so to start off, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Folklorists always have the most interesting stories for how they came to the field and yours, if I remember correctly in my ancient history is part of what made me want to enter the field. So what's your folklore origin story?
1: Well, that's, uh, you know, there's, there's really not much to say, I guess, uh, on that front, but, uh, I, I became interested in, uh, Southwest China, probably, as a very small kid, our uh, church used to have uh, rummage sales, and there were copies of National Geographic magazine from the 1930s that I got a hold of, and I saw these pictures in photo essays by Joseph Rock, uh, and some of the things that he was doing uh, down in southwest China among the Nashi and uh, some other ethnic groups. And I also was a big fan of dinosaurs. And Roy Chapman Andrews was one of my heroes who uh, did work up in uh, Inner Mongolia. And um, from a very early age, I sort of had an awareness. And then later on, you know, various uh, things in life sort of led me to the an interest in a folk culture oral tradition and uh, material culture Uh, spent a number of years uh, in my high school years in parts of Appalachian Ohio and uh, learned how to do uh, a number of things like uh, blacksmithing and and that that kind of stuff which later helped me understand um, and appreciate a lot of the material culture aspects of some of the epics that I would work on later and then in uh, college at Ohio State University, I uh, uh, took a, a course on East Asian art with uh, Susan Huntington, uh, my first uh, semester there, and uh, got into uh, Chinese studies, was really into Ezra Pound's poetry for a while, and uh, got into some of uh, Francis Densmore's uh, translations of Anishinaabe uh, oral Literature. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, went on a study abroad trip to Taiwan about 1978 and stayed several months there, stayed over a little bit, and really got into uh, some of the oral and ritual uh, culture there. And then by uh, 1980, I found myself, uh, summer of 1980, about August, I guess it was, found myself um, on a sort of I guess, exchange program, um, with, uh, Gongshui Yuan, uh, uh, Tec- technology, uh, university. I'm not sure exactly how they uh, translate it now, uh, in Wuhan. And stayed a year there and, uh, met people from the, uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, in particular, Zaru Chang, uh, who, uh, uh helped me, um, Publish a book uh, that I translated, a very small book, an uh, e- epic poem uh, from Yi people in Yunnan province. Uh, one of my uh, students in my composition class, uh, Miss Wu, was uh, from a Zhuang ethnic group uh, from Guangxi, and uh, she uh, wrote a little paper on some of the antiphonal folk songs of her people. And um, eventually we went down to the people's bookstore and then found a small selection of uh, volumes that had been recently republished, uh, things that had been collected in the 1950s, a short book. Uh, short epics, uh, ballads, and that sort of thing from various ethnic groups in Southwest China. So I, I grabbed the uh, shortest one and started uh, translating that. Uh, my Chinese wasn't so great, and I was having to learn uh, simplified characters at the same time. But uh, Jia Ruchang of uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, who was there studying English you know, on a special program, uh, was impressed by my interest in that. And eventually he took me, uh, to Beijing or I rather visited him in Beijing and we, uh, went and had an audience with Zhong Jingwen, who was the, you know, great, uh, folklorist. And, uh, long story short, I wound up in Guangxi, uh, the next summer, Guangxi university and, uh, stayed there for about six years until, uh, Nineteen eighty-seven, and then came back to Ohio State uh, for graduate school. And uh, during that uh, time in Guangxi, I was able to uh, make uh, several trips uh, to Guizhou and uh, Yunnan province. Uh, I was working uh, with Shi Kun, uh, who uh, 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 was one of the uh, language students uh, from Wuhan, who but was from Yunnan, and we did some work together. And we made some field trips along with my fiance, uh, Fu Wei, uh, to Yunnan province several times and entered several E areas, Chushong Yi area and, and Dali and Lichang and some of these places right after they uh, had opened up. And I got to see what things were like, you know, there in the, in the mid eighties uh, in that part of the world. And um, of course was working um, at Guangxi university with Sun Jingyao, uh, a comparative literature scholar, and we uh, edited that journal uh, called Cowrie. started that journal called Kaori, uh Chinese Journal of Comparative Literature, which was really the, uh, the first uh, new uh, journal of comparative literature that sort of addressed uh, foreign audiences uh, that was created in the, the 1980s. I think some version of that is still uh, being published in China today. But those were some of my uh, formative years uh, in China, and then, you know, came back and, uh, did graduate school, uh, went back in, uh, 91 to 92 to Suzhou. uh, did research on Sujo Ping Tan storytelling, and that eventually turned into a book in 2003, Plum and Bamboo. And, uh, in the meantime, I got hired on at Ohio state and, um, teaching, uh, culture courses and literature courses and you know giving courses on oral literature and uh, that sort of thing and since uh i guess 1999 i'd gone back to china every every year for at least a month or two and uh eventually got in, reinvolved with uh things going on in southwest china because uh, i'd spent a lot of time studying uh, pingtan in the interim and uh, got back in, uh, met people like Bamo Chubamoa and then eventually Stephen Harrell, and uh, got back into studying Yi uh, traditions. And through uh, Bamo Chubamoa and her sister, Bamo Aye, I was introduced to Aku Wu or Lo, Lo Ching Chuan, who's a professor at uh, Southwest Minzu University. And that uh, sort of is the lead in to what, uh, and he's a poet. Okay, and I was introduced to him because he was a poet, and uh, Chubamore uh, wanted me to uh, translate his Nosu language uh, poetry into English. Uh, so that, that's sort of the basis for uh, what maybe we'll be talking about uh, uh, later in this interview.
0: That's great. It's a really fascinating sort of lead up into all of to in, into folklore studies and to all of these things. Um, so I guess I guess maybe one of the one of the questions to start off with is probably I mean this this is an, a translation of a literal epic, and it's not the first that you've done. It's actually by my count, probably the third or the fourth at least translation of a literal epic that you've been part of, and so but epic is not really a popular topic in American folklore studies. Uh, what draws you to epic more generally?
1: Um, I, there, was, there was just something about these particular texts that I started to become familiar with in the uh, early 1980s in China. Uh, there had been these teams of folklorists in the 1950s who'd collected uh, epic uh, poetry, now, China had not been well known for having epic traditions uh, before, very you know recently, there's even this notion that there were no epic traditions in China. Uh, so this is still kind of a new, field uh, in Chinese uh, studies, though so I, I would say it certainly dates back to at least the 1950s, especially with this awareness that there are epic, many epic traditions among the ethnic minority groups, you know, King Gassar of the Tibetans and Jangar uh, of the Mongols, and then many of these uh, southwest uh, epics. And... Uh, Later on, when I, you know, came back to Ohio State, you know, after I sort of had developed sort of these interests, I, you know, I had a coursework with uh, Patrick Mullen, uh, who introduced me to performance folkloristics and then later got to know uh, John Miles Foley, uh, who uh, further encouraged me on uh Interest in things. And of course, Foley was very, very much uh, into epics. And um, so it all just sort of uh, came together. Um, I'd had this long standing uh, relationship uh, with uh, Gene Dan and his family. Uh, he was from the Miao or Hmong uh, ethnic group in southeast Guizhou province. And that was one of those places that I visited back in the uh, 1980s and started. Uh, working with him and his family on translating these, uh, uh epic poems, uh, that, uh, uh Jean Dan had been a student of Moshua Liang, uh, the famous, uh, linguist. And, uh, they had, uh, come up with a pretty good text that had been edited, you know, to, uh, quite a degree, but still, I, I thought it was a pretty good text compared to some of the other things that have just been over edited uh, from that uh, era, and I was at also able to get uh, some examples of the of the original language, and uh, you know was given s- some uh, tips on how to decode certain passages. So I was able to get a a sense of you know, what the original was like because at that time um, it was very very hard uh, to. Go in and you know get oral text. I, I did manage some of that you know while I was in Guangxi with some of the folk songs and things like that, but you know, part of the reason was you know, I uh was still only had a BA and it was mostly on my own interest, but also these, these were just sort of new concepts. The performance theory approach I hadn't uh, been introduced to China uh, at that time, so um. The situation now is 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 a lot different. Uh, different expectations on what you know would make a good uh, oral text. But anyway, uh, there were a lot of these things being uh, published uh, in the nineteen eighties that had been collected in the nineteen fifties, and this uh, one uh, collection, which uh, epics from the Miao ethnic group that. Uh, I later uh, called Butterfly Mother, and I translated, uh, rather, published a translation of that with Hackett Publishing in 2006. And it was just the sort of worldview that's transmitted in these epics. I mean, you've got these sort of grand scale, um, you know, lyrical expression of things, but then you also get these very almost fine grained catalogs of what's there. Uh, in the environment, uh, very often, you know, origins of, you know, customs um, um, and a- aspects of material culture uh, origins of rituals and things like that. And it was, I think, that, that, that sort of combination of uh, the detail, um, cultural detail that's sort of held within uh, these epics uh, that is sort of held in this uh, literary manner where I've been reading this book on the history of the sword in England, in which they talk about the the sword, but also the appearance of images of, of swords and things like Beowulf and so forth. And it was an interesting point put forth in that book that sort of made me think, well, Part of my interest in, in, in this is because these things in the oral performances, they're being performed by people who, um, many of whom have probably used these sort of tools, who uh, have, are familiar with these uh, processes of forging and casting silver ornaments or weaving or what have you. And so the sort of fine detail that's mentioned uh, in these uh, epics, sometimes just a few words. And, you know, Foley's talked about that with his idea of traditional referentiality, where just an image or two can open up all kinds of things. But they especially open up all kinds of things to the audience that is most familiar uh, with those things. And so I always understood, you know, I learned a lot from, uh, translating these epics. You have to, I found it was absolutely necessary to go down, uh, to the rural areas and interact with people. And that's what Gene Dan did when I went over the first time to Guizhou province with Gene Dan, uh, he took us, uh on an extended uh, several day visit uh, and I had, a, you know, over a hundred questions. And then we just went through this list, you know, what is this tool? What is this custom? What is this, you know, uh, food? What is this process? What is the singing like? And it was all introduced to me. And uh, so when the Chinese scholars say that these epics are kind of encyclopedias of traditional knowledge, uh, there's a lot to that. And I think that that's sort of where uh, my interest sort of lies and that there's this kind of mix between this uh, oral living um, sort of genre in performance, but it also has this uh, reflection of of actually lived life, but also set within these mythical contexts. So you've got these various levels of creativity uh, and experience uh, intertwining together.
0: It's really fascinating. It makes me think of a translation of a comedy that I was doing recently. There's a, a proverb in it, and I kept trying to figure out, so what's the big deal about this proverb? And then I was also recently reading a section of the Tibetan Epic of Gesar. There's the proverb right in it. And so, yeah, I mean, how does that, for a culturally appropriate or a culturally competent audience, the of reference in a comedy or in a poem or these things can open up this whole world of meaning, uh, linking back to Epic and to whole worldviews. I think that's really, yeah. I mean, that's certainly something that I appreciate about it as well. Um, excellent. So, so in that, in the previous discussion, you sort of really, you, you talked a lot about sort of your work with, uh, uh, Jin Dan and the, the Miao and the Hmong Epic, um, that, that you published as Butterfly Mother in 2006. And, but now we also have this newer translation of the Nosu Book of Origins. And can you tell us a little bit about how this publication came to be?
1: Yeah, I'd say one more thing about the Miao epic. We uh, later uh, published another version of that, a trilingual version of that, that was published in uh, China um, about, I think it was about twenty. Ten or 2011, uh, which is in a uh, Miao uh, romanization uh, from Southeast uh, Guizhou romanization and uh, Chinese and English. And we worked on that with Gene Dan and his uh, uh, children, uh, Wu Yi Wen, uh, his son, and Wu Yi Fang, uh, his daughter. And uh, it's quite interesting that quite a bit of that uh, translation which was very very close in many ways to the butterfly mother text that i had had uh, but with some changes um, but that was you know they went around and uh, you know got even more portions of of the epic and added some of those in there from living singers and things like that so they created this kind of master text which I won't get in here today about, you know, the theory behind creating uh, these master texts in China. I've I've published on that before, but it's an interesting way of looking at things. But uh, I just wanted to mention that that uh, was uh, the result of, you know, about almost, you know, 30 years of interaction with that family. And and we have the trilingual uh, volume of that. It's kind of, kind of hard to find, but there's copies of it, you know, that are available. through library loan uh, in the U.S. Now, in terms of this Nosu Book of Origins, well, this goes back uh, to what I was saying about uh, the poet, uh, Aku Uwu, uh, when Bamo Chubomo and Bamo Ai, uh, who uh, work in, uh, Bamo Chubomo works in the uh, um Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and the Ethnic uh, Literature Institute of Ethnic Literature uh, there in CAS, and she's done you know huge amounts of, of field work among the Naxi people in uh, Southwest China, particularly in um, southern Sichuan. And the Naxi are one of the uh, or is the largest uh, subgroup of the E ethnic group. And the E ethnic group they're Tibeto-Burman speakers uh, uh, who you know, lived in the uplands of, uh, Southwest China. Uh, there's probably about 80 or so different subgroups, uh, mostly in, uh, Yunnan, uh, Sichuan, Guizhou, and a few, uh, in Guangxi and actually a few, uh, related groups of these Tibeto Burman speakers of Vietnam, uh, also. And, um, the Nosu uh, they have, uh, various divisions of the North as well, mostly in, uh, Southern Sichuan or on the border of Sichuan, and uh, Yunnan province. And Aku, uh, Wuwu, uh, came out of this, uh, milieu, um, in Liangshan mountains, uh, as a, as a child, he, uh, spoke only North language. he was about seven years old and, uh, you know, went to, uh, grade school during the Cultural Revolution, and there were um, teachers uh, from urban areas in Chengdu or whatever who uh, were, you know, teaching, sent down to the countryside and were teaching these kids. And so this was a chance for Aku to open up a whole different world to him. And he eventually uh, uh, went to uh, Southwest University for Nationalities and uh, is now a uh, professor there and a well, well-known poet writes in Norsu language and uh, Chinese, and um, so I was tasked with um, translating his uh, material uh, into English. And uh, so I, you know, started working with Aku in the early two uh, thousands and uh, managed to uh, publish a few of his Norsu language poems and places like Basalt, I think that was the first uh, one. And then Frank Stewart at uh, Manoa helped us uh, published a a number of them. And then quite a few others have appeared in things like Cha, Rattle, Palax, and uh, so forth. And um, we're still uh, working on uh, those poems today, but it came to a point where one of the things about Aku's work is that he's been influenced, you know, by a whole range of things, you know, French symbolists and, and, all, and all sorts of uh, things. Uh, you know, this, of course, there's this huge growth of uh, poetry among e poets, especially Norsu poets uh, in the 1980s, starting with uh, GD Maja, who's a, a extremely well-known a poet uh, in China today. And he's also of Nosu background background. But Aku uh, writes, you know, he was really the only one who started writing in the uh, uh, language. Everybody else is writing in Chinese because, you know, it's just easier to get an audience that way. So, so Aku writes in both. But the content of his uh, poetry relied so much and indexed so much on traditional mythology, uh, traditional uh, forms of expression, uh, such as. Uh, a ritual chance to call back wandering souls of children and uh that sort of thing and uh and, and this is a, a difficulty with a lot of the poetry by uh, many ethnic minority poets in china especially of that era of the 1980s and 90s early 2000s that there are all these references to tra- traditional lore but in aku's case it was uh, especially, uh, interesting because he was writing in, uh, Nosu language. And so he was you know, it's the, the direct, uh, Nosu words for things rather than, you know, dealing with Chinese equivalents of things. And so it, uh, um, became apparent to me that if you really wanted to understand Aku stuff, you have to understand, you know, su traditional lore. And in order to do this, um, <coughs> i pretty much determined that you know a key text and understanding uh this uh lore of the be uh, priests as they're called you know these ritual specialists of this be more culture which i'm still not terribly familiar with but um i've learned you know a fair amount about it but um the Nausu Book of Origins is what we're calling it, or the uh in E. Um, it's a key text, and if we translated this, um, we would be, you know, probably you know opening up a lot of doors to understanding many more things about uh, traditional um, culture of the Nosu, but also throwing, shedding light and allowing us to understand what the contemporary poets and artists and so forth uh, were doing, because there's a lot of uh, this this content of this book of origins, you know, touches on um, so many aspects of traditional life. There's so many templates for traditional behavior. Uh, there's uh, certain portions of it, which are uh, performed at um, weddings, certain portions um, performed at funerals. And then there's examples of various sorts of uh, customs and, of course, uh, accounts of origins of all sorts of things, including um, the natural world. And uh, this, this again, is another uh, thing that's drawn me toward these epics is the way uh, the natural world um, is portrayed. I've used this word uh, cosmographic uh, before, which uh, sort of draws on um, Ben Humboldt's uh, ideas of cosmography from the 19th uh, century. And uh, uh, Joni Adams, Adamson uh, has uh, uh, written on this and her works on eco-literature. And um, I sort of picked up that term uh, from her, but it's a very apt term. Uh, this cosmographic. It, it's this sort of uh, view of things where it's not necessarily a human-centric world, but it's this whole uh, vast uh, cosmos there. And when we encounter this uh, in the epic, uh, in these epics, it's often in a, with a kind of intimacy that um, r- really uh, speaks to um, how these... Uh, groups interact, you know, with their local environments, which uh, in some ways uh, we could take as being being sort of positive models for interaction in other ways. uh, You know, it's also exploitative, you know, a lot of stuff about um, uh, farming and uh, opening up forests and uh, that sort of thing. Um, So it's, you know, human activities are also reflected there.
0: (laughs) That's really cool. And I mean, it's clear that it's so important. Uh, as a text for for understanding sort of nosu history, but also nosu expression in the current moment. Um, so normally I would work with guests to tell us about their books chapter by chapter, but this book is a little different. The introduction is nearly a hundred pages long, and it's full of all this vital contextualizing information um, and we hardly have time to go chapter by chapter through the 29 meticulously translated sections of the Epic included here. Um, So I'm wondering if maybe we can sort of focus on, on the introduction, uh, especially because probably many listeners may not be so familiar with the Nosu or with the book of origins, um, more generally. So, um, and then maybe we can sort of move into a broader conversation of the Epic, Um, to start off with who are the Nosu? So, I mean, we've used this word, several times in our conversation so far but who are they and where in the broader broader area designated as southwest china do they live
1: yeah as i as i uh, mentioned uh, most of the northu who number uh, over 2 million uh, live in what is called the cool mountain area of southern uh, sichuan province um, several taking up several present day provinces, um, up until the 1950s, uh, they'd been, uh, managed to sort of isolate themselves up in the mountains. Um, the, the, history, um, is, is quite unclear about, you know, their origins, where they come from. There's all sorts of, uh, tantalizing sort of clues that they may have had some sort of relationship with maybe more. Northern peoples at one time, ancient Chang people um, from up in areas that would be maybe Qinghai Province uh, today, um, but you know later on uh, came farther south. Uh, there may have been some sort of uh, connection with uh, subgroups of Mongols, um, possibly ancient connections to India. It's it's very very uh, unclear about where uh, they came from but um they were a caste society until the 1950s there was this upper class uh, what has uh, often been called the black uh Nosu or the black e um, sort of at the top of things and then several um um subcasts of uh white e or White Nausu, or actually White E, actually um, below them with, with with various names in uh, E language, and um, the lowest uh, caste would have been uh, captured people, captured enslaved people, you know, from surrounding areas uh, where the you know, according to the stories, the Nausu. Warriors would descend upon, you know, various villages and carry off, you know, mostly Han, you know, villages and carry off captives, and then they would become enslaved and, um, you know, have their sort of place, you know, within uh, the society. And this uh, went on down into the 1950s, and uh, when, uh, you know, during land reform and other uh, movements, and uh, this uh, caste system was broken up and uh, the enslavement uh, ended. Um, there's still an awareness of this sort of caste uh, thing among the Knoosu uh, today, but um, the old uh, old ways have been broken up. Uh, and again, they speak uh, tibeto burman uh, languages, and of course there's uh, many other groups in southwest China, such as uh, Nashi and Lahu and um, so forth, who, uh, Lisu, who speak uh, tibeto burman languages. Um, there's also um, possibly some ancient connections to the ancient uh, Nanjiao uh, kingdom uh, back in, you know, 7th or 8th century, uh, contiguous with the Tang dynasty. Um, there's seems to have been uh, traditions of uh, writing which go quite far back. uh, The Bimo priest that I mentioned before uh, had systems of writing. This book of origins that we translated is from a written text that uh, was uh, recorded by Jivo Zochu, who in his uh, younger days uh, was an epic singer. Um, These big life cycles events of weddings and funerals uh, passages of the uh, epic are sung at these things and Jivo Zochu was kind of a, a performer um, at these events which could be quite competitive between you know singers of different uh, families and so forth and uh, later during the cultural revolution he got uh, a hold of uh, written uh, versions, and it was taught uh, to read by an older uh, ritualist, um, and he copied uh, the uh, ancient text, the ancient scrolls that he had, uh, into a modern version of the e-script, which was developed in the 1970s, and that's the basis of the of the uh, text that uh, we used as our Uh, translation. And uh, in the introduction I, you know, go into some detail um, about uh, the traditional uh, Nosu uh, language, uh, written language. Uh, It's all written in verse. Um, It covers various uh, sorts of uh, histories, uh, origin texts, uh, things to do with uh, astronomy, um, astrology, uh, herbal medicine, uh, folklore, um, and even some, what we might call uh, literary sort of narratives. And there were several centers for this, uh, e-writing, uh, Guizhou. A lot of texts have been collected from the Guizhou area in, uh, Western Guizhou. And this book of origins, uh, it circulates, uh, orally and in writing. Uh, the the priests or ritualists called be More, Um this is sort of a father to son sort of thing in uh, most uh, cases. And these uh, texts would be handed down within uh, families and networks of bimor. Uh, there's just like anything in the uh, folk tradition, you know, a lot of variation. Uh, when these things, when these epics are performed orally, there's even more uh, possibilities for variation in terms of, uh, what's going to be sung when, what's going to be emphasized and uh, so forth. And Bamo Chubomo did a a lot of research on this. There's been quite a few versions, well over a dozen versions in writing of this uh, collected and some published in Chinese uh, translation. Um, but what we were looking for was the text that had not uh, gone through any sort of editorial process other than at the very local level uh, by a local folk literati or um, by... Uh, Um, be more uh, themselves. And so uh, Aku Wu Wu knew about Jibo Zochu, and uh, sometime around 2005 or so, we began engaging with him. And I, you know, this is explained uh, in the preface and introduction uh, as well. And uh, then we got into this, uh, process where we, uh, created this system by which to, uh, you know, decode, uh, the epic, uh, from NOSU um, into Chinese. And so we had, you know, developed the Chinese version of, and, uh, also developed the English version as well. So the English version has been along with, uh, an online, uh, supplement in NOSU. Uh, or standard E Northern E uh, Romanization. That's that's been published. Uh, we're still waiting on a Chinese Nosu version, which will uh, eventually um, appear. But uh, some of the things that are uh, given in the introduction, aside from traditional writing, we have things on uh, traditional uh, cosmology. Uh, we have things on you know marriage customs, um, funeral customs um uh various uh passages on the structure the poetic structure of the epics uh performance contexts and uh so forth so that that's what much of the introduction um Hmm. comprises um Some of the introduction is also devoted uh, to various sections of the epics, sort of uh, telling, you know, what happens in each section. Um, The first uh, major section uh, deals with origins of things. You know, it starts with the uh, uh, creation of the sky and earth, separation of the sky and earth, some things about lightning. Um, And then you have these various gods are delegated by the head sky spirit to come down and implant life on earth. And then you get into uh, these uh, various uh, mythical heroes, including this uh, uh, sort of monkey-like figure um, who um, is also, you know, a creator uh, figure and has certain tasks. And then finally we get to these passages on this culture hero called Zhuga'alu, who uh, is the son of a woman named Pumoni, and she was the, uh, she's the only uh, woman in the book of origins where uh, you've got um, her genealogy there. The genealogy is a huge thing among the North but it's, it's primarily patri- patriarchal Uh, patrilineal rather uh, genealogy. But her genealogy is is there and she's got some relationship maybe to dragons. But uh, one day she was weaving out in front of her house and these dragon eagles uh, flew over and some droplets of blood uh, uh, fell down and touched her body uh, in several places. And soon after she felt strange and went to consult a B-more, and the be uh, did these various, uh, divinations on her and said, well, you're going to give birth to a supernatural being. And, uh, and she does, she gives birth to this unusual child who won't listen, uh, to things, uh, won't drink her milk, uh, won't wear clothes properly and won't eat, you know, food properly. And so she casts him out, Uh, into the wilderness to be raised by dragons. And so he's raised by dragons, but later uh, grows up into this uh, uh, culture hero who eventually um, the world enters this age of overheating where everything is is burning. Every, you know, the land is shriveling. All the plants are shriveling. The animals are dying off. People are having a rough go of it. And uh, so Zhuga'alu, eventually shoots down the extra suns that had been made during the time of creation. And so we only have one sun and one moon today uh, because of that. Now that's a story that is uh, shared with a number of other ethnic groups. It's a very, very old uh, Chinese story in Chinese mythology, and Han Chinese mythology. Uh, But also the Miao people have a very, very similar uh, story of this hero uh, shooting down the extra suns and moons in the sky. So it's a huge section. On Jiga'alu. But uh, what follows after that is a section upon which uh, there's another reseeding of life on Earth. Okay, um, so you've got the life force uh, falls down onto the Earth once it's cooled down, and then you get these uh, series of snowfalls, and finally a, a, a red snowfall which kind of combines with this life force which is uh falling down and all nosu nosu uh uh, women are said to have this life force it's the force that allows uh uh, uh, people to become pregnant and so um this force is uh, dropped to earth and out of this mix. Eventually we get um, this sort of series of anthropomorphs who eventually become humans. And um, these life forms, the nascent life forms are divided into the uh, sons or children or offspring of snow. And you've got six that have blood and six groups that uh, do not have blood. So those without blood are the various trees and grasses and other plants. And those with blood are various sorts of animals, uh, which would include, uh, things like, uh, large birds, monkeys, bears, frogs, snakes, and humans. And those are just kind of representative of, uh, the various, uh, life forms. And, uh, so it's quite interesting that humans are put into that mix and this kind of, uh, what some of the uh, South American um, eco critics have described as this kind of pluriverse, which is you know sort of a reflection of that sort of Amazonian uh, worldview or worldview of some of the uh, ethnic uh, indigenous people in uh, South America, these sort of terms become kind of popular over the last couple of decades. This idea of a pluriverse rather than just a human-centered universe. But at any rate, um, after the, a number of generations, uh, the ancestors of those you know, original humans, uh, this one person called Shirley Woto goes off searching for a father, okay, on this big thing. So this is kind of this uh, notion that uh, uh, the original matrilineal society is sort of shifting into the patrilineal. This is what you know Chinese uh, researchers read into uh, the text and so surely what goes off uh, in search of a father and in the process uh, finds a marriage partner and all these various uh, customs surrounding marriages and so forth and how to treat guests at weddings and etc et um, happen and then one of his offspring or descendants rather um, there suddenly becomes a time when there's going to be a great flood. You know, you have these uh, messengers from the sky come down and say that, you know, certain humans have done certain bad things and there's going to be a great flood. And uh, so one of uh, the uh, good sons of a particular family um, is allowed to uh, survive the flood and, um, eventually marries a, the daughter of the sky god, and she comes down uh, from the sky, and he, he travels up to the sky. At that time, he, there were routes to the sky um, on these sort of uh, wires or, or chains of metal uh, to the sky. And um, he brings her back uh, to earth, and she brings with her things like horses and hemp, and um, buckwheat, because that's a, a staple of the Noa and uh, sort of steals these. And her father's not too, ha- too happy about that, so he cuts off the links to the sky and earth. And eventually, um, this uh, earthling and uh, celestial uh, goddess, <coughs> daughter of the sky god, they give birth to three um, offspring three children, but they can't speak. And so they have to go up to the sky again with the help of uh, various animals, some of which uh, uh, they uh, you know, the young earthling had helped, uh, uh, Jumu had helped, his name was Jumu, help, uh, help save from the flood. And uh, so these creatures uh, help him <clears throat> recover the key to speech. Okay, this one bird called the Yochu bird flies up there, and and over here the sky god chatting with his wife, and then flies back down, and <clears throat> so eventually they, uh, the husband and wife on Earth, uh, the Earthling and the sky god's daughter, they go up to the top of this big mountain, and have this big pot of boiling water, and put bamboo in it, and the bamboo explodes, and shocks uh, their children into speaking. And they each speak a different language. Uh, One speaks Nahu, another speaks uh, Tibetan, and another speaks uh, Chinese. Now, of course, the names for these ethnic groups are a little bit different than what they are today uh, in the epic. And thereafter, in this last portion of the epic, um, these various ethnic groups uh, fan out across the landscape and find their niches find their ideal niches. So the Tibetans find their places, the uh, Han people find their places, which tend to be really nice places along rivers. And, and the Norse who find their places up in the mountains, you know, Tibetans are in the grasslands or, or whatever. But there's also, oddly enough, in this version of the noble, there's also another group called the foreigners, and nobody can really quite figure out who they are. But uh, but there, it's another group that's that uh, they don't say too much about them, but they're there. And uh, but anyway, uh, several of these last sections chart uh, some of these big clans, because every you know every Norse who is in a clan, it's all genealogy, and uh, you know traditionally when two people meet, you know they're um, saying off their clan genealogies which can go back dozens of generations uh, sometimes and uh, trying to find a common ancestor uh, between them and um, so that, that's a big uh, big part of Nosu mentality is this uh, whole genealogy thing which fits in with this whole theme of the book of origin the connectedness of uh, everything and so some of these last chapters which are quite challenging because a lot of them are just these endless uh, listings of uh, begats. This generation begat this generation begat this generation begat this generation. Beget, this generation. So there's not a whole lot of narrative content in most of it, but as I had explained in the introduction, I spent you know part of the introduction explaining how uh, a lot of this uh, is within sort of the context of searching for an ideal place to settle down. And that's a big theme and. Uh, quite a few of these, uh, epic, uh, poems, uh, from Southwest China is there, there's this sort of search for an ideal place, uh, where people can settle down, where things grow right, where there's good water, where there's good resources for firewood and, uh, that kind of stuff and where they can grow, you know, strong, uh, strong children and, and, uh, et et cetera, and have a, have a, a good future ahead of them. And, and so that's what the last, uh portions of this are, are these uh, sort of accounts of the genealogies of these various uh, clans, some of which um, are quite identif- identifiable with the existing clans today. Um, a lot of the place names uh, in this part, uh, not really sure exactly where uh, things are, but some of them are uh, recognizable. So that, that's sort of an over- <laughs> overview of things.
0: It's incredible, and and thank you, and I can only imagine how difficult it is to distill an entire epic into about twenty minutes, um, and the background of the community that that maintains this e- and, and and transmits this epic. So, um, but I feel like a lot of that comes across really nicely. Um, I guess I wanted to to further pull out on one point. You said that there's a Nohsu version available online. Um, where where can people find that if they've if they've listened this far and uh, and are interested in finding it?
1: Yeah, the Nosu the Nosu version. I think that there's actually a link to that, uh, which is uh, mentioned uh, in uh, somewhere in the front matter of the uh, text. But if you uh, type in uh, Nosu Book of Origins. Uh, OSU text. You'll probably find it somehow or another. Um, Great. And that, that that was put up through University of Washington Press.
0: Should it be on their website then?
1: Um, that I'm not sure. It, it, it might be. Okay, we'll try to um, but find. But if anybody a has questions, they can you know email me at you know bender.4 <laughs> at osu.edu.
0: <laughs> we'll also try and find a find a version that we can then uh, include a link of in the show notes for this uh, for this episode. Um, all right. And, and I was wondering, do you have the book sort of to hand at the moment?
1: Yeah. I have hmm. it right next to me actually.
0: Okay. Would it? I mean, would you feel comfortable and it's okay if it's not, we'll just, I'll tell them to edit this last bit out. Um, but would you feel comfortable sort of, uh, maybe reading the English of, of a section or like just a little bit, just to sort of give a sense of how the, how the epic, is how the, how you've chosen to translate it.
1: Um, I, maybe I could read just a little bit of the last part. I don't want to re- really read any of the front because I'm not a BMO. And, yeah. uh, um, that's, uh, you know, that, that would be their uh, sort of thing. Right. Um, but this, uh, maybe part of the, uh, um, Maybe from page 114, Genealogy of Choni, ni uh, Just a few lines from this. And this again, it's a genealogy of one of one of the clans. Um, so just a few lines. A son of the Ho was the luck of the Ho. A son of the Ho was the luck of the Ho. The Ho migrated to a distant place. And after entering the distant place, they selected a red cow right away. Over 100 pack cows came along in front. The pack cow, Lunza led the way on the return. The livestock were uncountable. One day they went to select horses. The spirit and magic horses led the way. The creatures without cloven hooves were uncountable. Quarried stone was selected in the middle. Gold and silver were set in a row. Their uses were uncountable. Lastly, the pack string leader was selected. Over 100 youths followed in front. Over 100 maidens followed in front. Things in the human world were uncountable.
0: Oh, that's really great. Uh, and, and just to sort of follow up a little bit further on something that you said in sort of leading up to selecting this section, you said that the earlier sections are sort of the, the domain of the Bimo. Um, well,
1: all of it is. I mean, all, all of this is is, is uh, BMO, but this last thing was more, these last parts are more uh, genealogies, which uh, can be read uh, in, uh, you know, various ritual contexts. And at any time that there is a ritual in uh, that the BMO conductors always some sort of a reading of genealogies of the family and very often the uh, uh, local families uh, in the area. But uh, the sort of thing that, uh um, you know, these first, first parts uh, of the epic, uh, which they actually divide. There's various ways to talk about these parts of the epics Uh, some parts, uh, which would mostly the part early parts on the doings of the gods and Juga'alu, et cetera, would be called the black Noah. And then these things about, uh, after the, uh, 12, uh, sons of snow and this whole business with the flood and the migrations that's uh, uh sometimes called the white no and then sometimes just those sections about the creation of plants and animals are called the mottled uh novel. so there's all all kinds of uh local interpretations and uh, uh insider uh understandings of uh of, of the text with uh, concurrent uh, uh, terminology, which I we go into some to some extent in the introduction.
0: Great, great. Well, thank you so much. I, I'm realizing that in trying to trying to get you to talk about an entire epic alongside your entire career of studying epics, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, and so uh, I was wondering if if you'd be willing to just as a way of wrapping things up, um, tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now.
1: Um, I actually, what we're working on now is, um, I'm working, uh, just, uh, I got some stuff in the work with, uh, uh, Juan Carlos Galliano, who's an Amazonian, a poet and who, uh, participated in a, uh, ethnic minority literature event at, uh, Southwest a uh, university for nationalities back probably about, you know, five or six uh, years ago, I think it was around 2017 or something. And he's taken somewhat of an interest in, uh, Akawu's poem. So we're working together on, um, doing uh, some sort of, a this is still just in the very early stages, but, uh, uh a trilingual, uh, sort of, uh, edition of, uh, Akwu's major poetry in uh, Nausu, and some in Chinese and English and Spanish. Um, So that's what we're looking at now. Um, I'm also looking, uh, considering uh, doing another translation of uh, there's something called uh, Mamotoyi, which is uh, this sort of book of teachings, um, which has to do with customary behavior. uh, among the nosu uh but I'm still thinking about that.
0: It all sounds really fascinating. I'm particularly interested. I mean, the, the, the idea of translating Aku's poems now into also Spanish and sort of creating this tri- or even quadrilingual edition um, sounds really fascinating, but also sort of uh, as, as a, a really interesting project. So I can't wait to see more about it. Um, thank you very much, Professor Bender, for your time today and for taking the time to talk about your book, The Norse Book of Origins.
1: Well, thank you, Tam. This has been a, a, a wonderful experience. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, thank you.